Thank you for joining us this for the Modern Law Library podcast produced by the ABA, ABA Journal Web Producer Lee Roll. We bring you the latest legal news every day around the web. Author of Kids Visit us online two judges, at abajournal.com and a $2.8 million kickback scheme. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this story? Um, I've been a uh, journalist for about 50 years, and um, I spent most of that time with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, four years ago, uh, someone got ill in the Inquirer Harrisburg Bureau, and they asked me to fill in at the last minute. And uh, it happened to be the first the first hearing of a study commission into the scandal. And I spent the next two and a half years on the story. How much experience did you have with the juvenile court system before you actually wrote about it? I actually had to take a juvenile justice 101 course in my own head because I, I, I knew astoundingly and appallingly little about it. In the book, you say that there were many ingredients in the Luzerne County judicial scandal, official evil, greed, opportunity, public indifference, secrecy, and place. The setting of the story is integral to explaining what went on. Um, you talk about the culture surrounding Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, in the book. Can you explain to us a little bit about that? Well, the the, uh, the level of public corruption up there is, is astounding. There's been an investigation going up there for about five years, and it's going to go on for uh, several more years, and it's been bringing down uh, legislators, uh, county commissioners, polls of all stripes. To give it a good example, uh, up until very recently, it was uh, an open secret that if you wanted to apply for a teaching job up there, you had to go to the interview with an envelope filled with four or five thousand dollars in cash and slide it over to your interviewer with your resume. And I'm not making that up. Believe me, that's true. That is astounding. Let's go into a little bit about um, what went on. I know it's complex, but uh, I think I can I think I can reduce it to these this, these uh, these simple terms. Two judges conspired with two businessmen. The businessmen built a new juvenile detention facility, privately owned, called PA Childcare. As soon as it was built, one of the judges entered into a secret agreement that helped the businessmen get the financing for the for the project. And uh, the other judge, who was the juvenile judge, he uh, once it was up and running, he started sending kids there. And in exchange, the, the two businessmen got got uh, were paid for each kid that was there. And in exchange, they kicked back money to the judges, and it eventually came to uh, almost $2.8 million. And just to give a, some scope to this, this wasn't just a few kids here and there. You say in the book that in a single year, Luzerne County, which has about 3% of the population in Pennsylvania, had 22% of all the juvenile placements into detention facilities. Yes, um, um, there were um, in, in all. I, I think over a period of five years, there were there were some three thousand kids involved. When we talk about juveniles and kids who end up in the juvenile court system, in our minds, often we're thinking about you know, oh, hard cases and hard bitten kids. Is that what you discovered when you started interviewing them? No, uh, most of these kids uh, had done uh, nothing more than what you might call uh, normal rebellious behavior of adolescence. I'm talking about vandalism 
and uh, so-called status offenses, which, of course, are uh, offenses that would not be an offense if they were an adult, things like uh, running away from home, skipping school. Occasionally there was a shoplifter in there, and one girl gave a cop the finger and was sent away for six months. Uh, now, there, for sure, there, there were a few bad actors in here, but uh, I would say about 5% fell into that category. What is really amazing to read in the book um, is you talk about, of course, the, the bad actors of these two judges, um, specifically Judge Mark Severella and Michael Conahan, but so many other people were involved in this as probation officers, the DA, the public defenders, and they couldn't have been totally ignorant that what was going on was wrong, but you say there was a kind of conspiracy of silence. Yeah, there's, there, there was this, uh, uh, for different reasons, these people who knew what was going on did not speak out. It, it wasn't all for one reason. For example, uh, some of the attorneys in there would have other cases before Chevarella, so they didn't want to antagonize him. And a lot of the court staff owed their jobs to Conahan, so they didn't want to antagonize him. These conspiracies of silence are not that uncommon. You, you had um, during the uh, Civil War, it was common knowledge that there were sexual relationships between masters and slaves, but nobody said anything. And um, you had, uh, when, when the um, Baseball players were breaking all those home run records 10 years ago. Everyone knew that they were dealing with steroids, but nobody said anything. And, uh, of course, you have the whole um, Roman Catholic hierarchy remaining mum about sexual abuse of boys by priests. There were people along the way who saw that something was going wrong and tried to end it. And this is, you know, years before it actually did end. Uh, one of them was Tom Krofcheck. Yes, uh, he was a auditor for the state public welfare department and uh, he got wind of, of the very high level of spending up there and how much money the uh, businessmen were making from uh, PA childcare and he started an investigation and PA childcare filed suit to block the investigation and uh, Judge Conahan assigned the case to himself and then he blocked the investigation and uh, he blocked it for three years, and Krofcheck was brought under all kinds of pressures. Uh, he actually was, was threatened with dismissal as an incompetent. But once he got back on track, um, he was one of the people who led to, to the downfall of the whole scheme. And was actually honored for his efforts. The, the, the same governor's administration that uh, labeled him an incompetent later honored him as an outstanding state employee. Another person who tried to speak out was Judge Chester Morosky. He was also a family court judge. Yes, he, he preceded Chivarella as the juvenile court judge. And um, he was actually pushed out of there because uh, this was right after the tremendous push towards uh, zero tolerance. And um, he was pushed out of there because people thought he was too lenient on, on the kids. So this is how uh, Chivarella got his foot in the door and... Um, he was watching this from afar. He was still a judge, and he was watching what was going on, and he finally wrote to Judge Conahan, who was the presiding judge, and um, raised the issue of, of um, the unreasonable amount of spending that was going on. And Miroski was 
quickly replaced in the family court and kind of demoted to another judgeship. But the net result of this was that Mirosky went to the FBI and got them interested in what was going on. Was that the beginning of the end? Yeah, that was that was pretty much the beginning of the end. Uh, the uh, the other factor that played into it was that um, uh, Chevrolet sent away a 14-year-old girl for putting a mock profile of a school official on a social website. And the mother of this girl was an educator and a social worker, and, and, and she knew something was wrong, and she pushed and pushed and pushed, and she eventually got to the Juvenile Law Center, which is a nonprofit advocacy group in Philadelphia that works nationally on behalf of, uh, of kids. And the Juvenile Law Center started its own investigation into the, uh, the injustices, and this started about the same time the FBI was looking into the uh, in, in the kickbacks, and uh, this was uh, those are the two things that uh, principally led to their downfall. One of the ways this was allowed to go forward was more than 50% of the kids who went before Chevarella actually did not have any legal representation and were I don't know if coerced is the right term, but talked into that by the probation officers. Yes, the the uh, probation officer would sit outside the courtroom and ask the kids and their parents if they wanted wanted an attorney, and sometimes they would advise them that they'd be better off without an attorney, and um, they would have them sign these uh, forms that uh, Chevrella had, had concocted himself in which they would waive their right to a lawyer, but these forms were completely illegal. Um, Chevarella was um, obligated under state law to explain very carefully to each kid the consequences of waiving their right to a lawyer, and he never did that. And of those who did not waive their right, 22% were sent away to placement, and of those who did not have a lawyer, 60%. So it, so it was bad advice that you'd be better off without a lawyer. Not everyone was upset by the way Chivarella was acting. The schools in particular, you say, really approved of what he was doing. Yeah, the educators really liked what he was doing because um, he was saving them a lot of, of, of trouble. Uh, if they had a, had, had a problem kid, all they had to do was call the cops, and that would get the kid before Chivarella uh, and um, out of their hair. And uh, so things that were once uh, a, a matter for uh, in-school discipline, uh, shoving matches, uh, cursing at a teacher, disrespect to a teacher, suddenly became very serious matters. And once they got the, once they brought the cops in, that, that would get them before the judge, and uh, and the judge was uh, more than more than happy to uh, send them away. So the educators of Lutheran County, in effect, made Chivarella their chief disciplinarian. And, and he was widely revered uh, in the schools because of that. And there were other people who liked him, too. You were reporting on a commission. I guess it's the Interbranch Commission on Juvenile Justice. Yes. What were their recommendations? Well, they made about 43 recommendations. The, the, the main ones, which, which, by the way, all have become law and or court rule, uh, one was uh, greatly restricting the right to waive the right to a lawyer. Number two, uh, making public defenders available to all kids. Uh, before this, there was a needs test for public defenders, so a lot of kids didn't qualify for one because the parents made too much money. 
they uh, streamlined the appeals process so it didn't take so long because, of course, kids kids don't go away for very long. So if they want to appeal their disposition, it's got to happen faster than the normal appeals process. The, the shackling was virtually eliminated except in, in grave uh, cases of uh, physical danger to the people in, in the courtroom. And uh, finally, and, and a really important thing, is that now juvenile court jurors are required to um, give a written explanation of their disposition, why they did it. And if, uh, if Chevrolet had been forced to do that, uh, he would have been very hard-pressed because some of, his, some of his recommendations were absurd. Like the 15-year-old girl who threw her sandal at her mother and got sent away for right. six months. Right, exactly. Would you read us an excerpt of your book? Sure. Well, um, what I'd like to do, Lee, uh, the end of the book uh, kind of sums up, up what I think uh, was really important here. And uh, right before that, I go into a somewhat um, lengthy discussion of the differences between juveniles and adults in the criminal justice system and within the juvenile group, the difference between violent offenders and and the 90 to 95 percent of kids who are doing nonviolent things. And this is what I say. <clears throat> but such distinction and nuance seem to be absent among large numbers of people, not just in northwestern Pennsylvania, but throughout the United States. We are a nation that sees imprisonment as the best means of controlling crime. And why should kids be any different? What candidate for judge or, or any other political office ever got votes by promising to work towards rehabilitating criminals? Retribution trumps rehabilitation every election day. Thus, it is that America, with only 5% of the world's population, is home to 25% of its prisoners. This pervasive belief that more people need to be locked up was the rich breeding ground for the Luzerne County disaster. Like the coal mine operators a century earlier, Chivarella, and less directly, his co-conspirator, Conahan, preyed on people too weak to fight back. They were easy targets. No sons or daughters of wealthy businessmen or professionals were hauled off in shackles. Many of the victims came from disruptive, impoverished households. Chivarella ordered his probation officers to lull them into a false sense of, of, of security, and then he sucker-punched them when they got into the courtroom. Children and parents left separately and bewildered. There was no justice, and this was the real crime, that the judges took money to further these ends only made it a worse crime. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I enjoyed it, Lee, and, and uh, thank you for talking to me, and uh, I hope that people learn something from this book. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.